invite you to join with me to the book of Second Kings, where tonight we will be looking together at Second Kings chapter three. going to read tonight about uh, King Jehoram, uh, the king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Uh, Jehoram uh, being the second of the sons of Ahab, who has come to the throne in uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, you remember that his uh, brother had reigned before him, and uh, uh, had died after falling, after, uh, falling and injuring himself. He reigned a very short time, and now Jehoram is on the throne in northern Israel. And uh, let's then uh, attend to the reading of God's word, Second Kings chapter 3, 1 through 27. Hear the word of God. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from it. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. And when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And so King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at, the at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went out and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he, Jehoshaphat, said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. When they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Japheth, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father, to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Elisha said, 
as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. Were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. When the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you and your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. And so the next morning, about the time of the offering, offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able put on armor from the youngest to the oldest, and they were called out and were drawn up to the border. When they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. When they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. They went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. And they stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this account of these kings who, having been called to do battle against Moab, seek the counsel of Elisha and lead their armies. And Lord, we ask that as we uh, examine this passage together, that you would be with us, that you would guide us by your spirit, that you would help us to understand it, that we, in our day, may serve you as we ought. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's said that uh, crisis reveals character. 
And uh, we have read tonight of uh, two great crises, the crises of these three kings who find themselves with armies lacking water, in need of water, and they turn to Elisha to seek counsel from him, a word from the Lord. And then at the very end of the chapter, we have Misha, the king of Moab, who finds that the battle is going against him, and he also is in crisis, and we see what he does in order to try to stop the Israelites. And so I want to look tonight at this passage under five sections, and uh, we're just going to work our way through it. And uh, I'm not going to necessarily list all the five things, but the first one that I'd like for us to look at is found in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, and it is Jehoram's character. Jehoram's character. And we see that uh, mentioned here in the very beginning of this chapter. We read that Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. And uh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from it. Jehoram is here assessed in his character by the word of God, the writer of Kings. And he's assessed as one who made some effort to do better than his father had done. He put away the pillar of Baal. He put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. And so he shows some sensitivity on the issue of Baal worship. And yet, you'll notice that by putting it away, he didn't destroy it, but that he took it down. And Jehoram here is presented to us still as one who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he's presented to us as one who is half-hearted and takes the service of the Lord in a rather light way. He made an effort to do better. And he was content that uh, he did evil not like his father and mother. He was not supportive of Baal worship as his father and mother Uh, Ahab and Jezebel had been. Nevertheless, he continued in idolatry, the idolatry of Jeroboam. And you remember that Jeroboam had established idol worship in uh, the capital of uh, the northern kingdom, both on the southern end and the northern. And he had uh, encouraged that idolatry. And so Jehoram is an example of one who did better, but who was not in his heart truly committed to the worship of Yahweh. He is presented as one who did evil in the sight of the Lord. He is an example of many who will trim back or not be as bad as they might be 
and they comfort themselves that there are many others who do much worse than they do. You often hear, uh, sometimes uh, young people will say this to their parents, um, you should see what everybody else does. And it's an idea of, of comparing and saying, well, I, I'm a whole lot better than most. And yet, God's word requires of God's king, and God's word requires of you and me that we be wholehearted in our commitment to him and that we would worship him with all of our mind, soul, and heart. Jehoram is a warning to all about the danger of half-heartedness or lukewarmness in the things having to do with religion or God. We should ask ourselves, what is the state of our hearts? What is the state of your heart tonight? Do I genuinely grieve when I sin? Or am I mildly bothered, maybe for a little while, but I get over it fairly quickly? Is there fruit of repentance in my life? Or do I pretty much, after feeling badly for a while, continue to do what I have been doing all along? Another thing to ask ourselves is this, do I love the word of God? Do I feel that it is my greatest need to please, to know God, and to seek to please him? These are the kinds of questions that we ought to ask ourselves. We ought to be those who are aware of the danger of half-heartedness and lukewarmness of our hearts. It's often the case that we find that we go through periods of, of where things cool down and we don't feel the same emotions that we once felt. But are we wholeheartedly committed to the Lord? Is it my highest end to please him and to be one who lives in obedience to his word, to whatever he commands me to do, I will do it. Jehoram was half-hearted in his obedience. The second thing for us to consider tonight, and we see this in verses 4 through 8, is Jehoram's campaign. Jehoram's campaign. First, uh, we see that uh, Jehoram's uh, half-heartedness in religious matters, we look now at his campaign. And we see that the circumstance which brought it on is that the king of Moab, Misha, was a sheep breeder, and he got tired of sending all that wool, all those lambs and all that wool to the king of Israel. And when Ahab died, he saw his opportunity. He was going to rebel. He would no longer send uh, the desired or the required quota of sheep and wool. And that is, this is the circumstance that brought about this military campaign. 
And so in verse 6 we read, So the king, king Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel, and he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And so he begins this with the help of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And he says to him, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to do battle against Moab? Pause and think about that appeal. Pause and think about those words. Jehoram's desire to subjugate Moab is entirely hypocritical. He is in open rebellion against his own overlord, and yet, and he is not worshiping God according to his word, he is not rendering to God that which God requires of him, and yet uh, he desires to go to war against Moab, Moab because Moab is uh, withholding that which is rightfully his. He's going to war to enforce payment of tribute that Moab is withholding. Do you see the hypocrisy in that? It's often the case that we act out those things which if we pause to reflect on our own motivations and our own relationship with the Lord, we would see how hypocritical we sometimes are. He doesn't seek the Lord's guidance in this military campaign. campaign. There's no mention of going to a prophet, uh, seeking the prophet's uh, input. There's no help or blessing upon the military campaign against Moab. And even Jehoshaphat, you'll notice that though uh, in 1 Kings, uh, when uh, he is called by Ahab to join him in battle, Jehoshaphat at that time says, let's, re- let's inquire of a prophet. Here, Jehoshaphat says the same words that he said to Ahab, I will go, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. You see, this is a, a repeated, this is now the third time that Jehoshaphat has joined together with the northern kingdom in something that uh, is displeasing to the Lord. And Jehoshaphat agrees. He decides to go with him. And he asks Jehoram, which way shall we march? So this, at this point, I'm going to ask the guys in the back if they'll put up this map. Yeah. I thought this might be helpful for you to be able to see. You see Samaria in the upper left. You see uh, Jehoram brings his army down to Jerusalem. He gathers Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat has has subjugated Edom to the south of Moab. And so the king of Edom joins Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. And they march down around the southern tip, the way of Edom, the southern tip of the Red Sea. So hopefully that helps you to see Uh, the direction and the path where they are going. You can see that uh, where uh, there is a river at the bottom. I don't know if you can see it, but there's a river at the bottom of the Dead Sea, and that river 
is probably where they are, where they run out of water in the uh, crisis that they face. Thanks, guys. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. Thirdly, now let's look at Jehoram's crisis. Jehoram's crisis. Saw Jehoram's campaign, now Jehoram's crisis. They're marching uh, to battle against, uh, against the king of Moab. They take, we read in verse 9, a circuitous route, a march of seven days, and there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. And it seems uh, interesting to note that there, no provision was made and there was no, uh, it seems, uh, you know, on the face of it, they're, they're, they're marching through desert territory and they find that they are without water. And so this is the crisis that they face. They will be defeated by Moab. They will be uh, defeated without water. And so we then we see in verses 10, in verse 10, Jehoram's response to the crisis. Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. On the one hand, Jehoram is foolish in marching his troops in desert territory with no provision of water. But notice how his response is immediately one of hopelessness. He says that there is... Uh, that the Lord has brought them together. And it's a strange kind of an answer because he, a strange kind of response because he seems to uh, want to use language that indicates that the Lord is doing this and that these three kings are now being handed over to Moab. So his response then shows that he has no hope, he has no faith. There is nothing in his response that leads him to believe that the Lord could help him. That the Lord could help him. But notice Jehoshaphat's response in this crisis. Verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants, and notice that it is the servant of the king of Israel, not the king himself. The servant says, Elisha the son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, Yes, the word of the Lord is with Elisha. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom go down. So in the response of Jehoshaphat in this crisis of the lack of water, there is implied faith. In contrast to Jehoram, Jehoshaphat implies in his question that if they were to go to the prophet, that God may provide for them a way of escape in their difficulty. The Apostle Paul, in his epistle, refers to temptation to sin. And uh, he says that all temptations are common to man, but God is faithful. 
And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with that temptation, he will provide a way of escape. So you may find yourself in a crisis. You may find yourself in temptation. Are you brought to the place where Jehoshaphat went? Let's seek the Lord. Let's go to the prophet of the Lord. Let's see if the prophet, if God, will provide a way of escape for us. That's the way we ought to be. We ought to think of the Lord, and we ought to think of his word. And we ought to think, first and foremost, when we find ourselves in a difficult circumstance, let's go to the Lord about this. How many husbands and wives you find yourself in the midst of a difficult discussion? We'll leave it that way. A difficult discussion. What's the best thing to do? When you reach an impasse and you just don't know what to do, what's the best thing to do? Both of you just stop. Say, let's go to God. Let's ask him to help us with this problem that we are having. That's what I'm talking about. When we reach a point where we don't know what to do, and this is certainly the case of these three kings, they go to the prophet under Jehoshaphat's leadership and seek a way that the Lord will provide in this circumstance. So they go to Elisha, and Elisha, It's interesting, as we see, they come before Elisha the prophet. And uh, Elisha says to the king of Israel, and it seems as though the king of Israel is taking the lead. Remember, he's the one that brought Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, along to help him. But Jehoram is sort of taking the lead. And Elisha says to Jehoram in verse 13, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Jehoram certainly has not abolished the prophets of Baal, though he removed a pillar to Baal. The prophets of Baal still exist in the northern kingdom, and Elisha reprimands him sharply. The king of Israel says to him, to Elisha, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab again. Very strange response. Sounds somewhat pious. There's a reference to God there. But it's entirely devoid of faith. Entirely devoid of the idea that God is the living God and he could do something to help us. And Elisha says to him, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, Were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. And so we see then that Jehoshaphat is the reason that Elisha offers them hope. Jehoshaphat is an interesting character. As as we've seen in the past, he was a godly man, but he was very definitely a flawed, godly king. But he was a flawed king who was in the eyes of the prophet Elisha. 
in right standing with God. And so he says, I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And if I did not, I would not even speak to you. So Jehoram and the king of Edom receive an audience with Elisha and help from the prophet Elisha because of Jehoshaphat's standing as the heir of David, as the heir of the promises that God had made to the people of Israel, of David, to David. It's because of that promise that God made to David that he would keep his sons on the throne of Israel. For David's sake, the Lord, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him. It is because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and Jehoshaphat stands in David's stead. And he is the rightful ruler, and he is a man in right standing with God. You remember the beautiful words that David speaks in 2 Samuel 23, 5. The Lord has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered and in all things, ordered in all things and secure. Covenant that God made with David rested with Jehoshaphat. And it is because of that covenant and Jehoshaphat standing in the line of David that Elisha, speaks to him. So it is true for you and me tonight. We have access to God because of another. Another who is the son of David, the son of God, descended from David according to the flesh and declared as the son of God now in power because of his resurrection from the dead. It is because of Jesus Christ and his work for us It is because of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and ascension that we now stand before God and are accepted in his presence as having one who intercedes for us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is the basis of your assurance to appear before God, to seek for his help in your time of crisis? What is the basis? How can we, when we are overwrought with the circumstances that we face, how can we come before God? And especially at those times, it's especially difficult to come before God. You feel all the reasons that we have no standing all the more acutely. And that's why I think these words of Elisha to Jehoram and about Jehoshaphat are so important. It is because of Jehoshaphat that Jehoram has a hearing with Elisha. It is because of Jesus Christ that you and I have a hearing with God. It is because of what he has done. And so that beautiful hymn that is written about Christ Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Christ the solid rock. When darkness veils his lovely face, and there are times when darkness veils his face, 
I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then, he then is all my hope and stay. We come to God in our need and in our crisis and in our difficulty because there is one who has been accepted by God, who is the heir of David's promise, who is the son of God according to the flesh and the son of David, uh, the son of David according to the flesh and the son of God, declared to be the son of God by his resurrection. So what then is the basis of our assurance of eternal life? Is it not that this gift is given to you because of the obedience, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Savior? If you are in Christ, you are clothed with his righteousness, and you have access with God. Yes, sometimes when you feel the least worthy of it. So we consider, fourthly, Jehoram's promise. Jehoram's promise, verses 15 through 19. And so Elisha says, Bring me a musician, and the musician played, and the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he says, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. You won't see any wind or rain, but the stream bed will be filled with water so that you can drink you and your livestock and your animals. Pastor Rob last week noted the importance of water in the miracles that Elisha performs. And God says, this abundance of water that I will supply is a small thing. It is a light thing. I will also give the Moabites into your hand and shall attack every fort, you shall attack every fortified city. He goes on to describe the victory that they will have. So the Lord gave to Israel in a miraculous way these armies, the armies of the northern kingdom of Israel, and the armies of Judah, unfaithful as they are, and yet the Lord sustained them in this military campaign. The next morning, verse 20, the next morning, about the time of the offering of the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Eden till the country was filled with water. The Lord supplied their need. And he gave victory as well to Israel over the Moabites. The Lord promised them success in battle. He causes the Moabites to believe a de delusion. In verse 22, they saw the water in the early morning sun, and it appeared to them as red as blood, and they believed that... Uh, and it's not too off, uh, off uh, to think this, that, uh, that the armies of the northern kingdom of Israel and the armies of the southern kingdom of Judah and, the, and uh, the armies of Edom had clashed with each other and wiped one another out, and here was blood. And so they came, the Lord caused them, first of all, to see a delusion. And then the Lord caused them to come to a reckless conclusion from what they saw, this is blood, and then they rushed right in, and the Lord gave to Israel 
the victory. Israel rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them, and they went forward and struck the Moabites. It is a total, uh, a total destruction. They're not only wiping out cities, but destroying the trees, stopping up the wells, uh, throwing stones on fields. It is uh, uh, emblematic of that final judgment of God on the Moabites. We come finally then, fifthly, to Jehoram's horror. Jehoram's horror. In verses 26 and 27. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom. But they could not. One last final push against the forces of the king of Edom. Misha, the king of Moab, uh, who is uh, in the Moabite, there's a Moabite stone that has been discovered that is, uh, that he had, that Misha, this king, is an amazing archaeological find. In this uh, transcription, he describes himself as this way, Misha, the the son of Chemosh, the king of Moab. And he says about himself on this stone, he says, I made the high place for Chemosh, for he delivered me from all the kings and gave me to prevail over all my enemies. He was a worshiper of the demon Chemosh, the false god. And he saw that the battle was going against him, and he took his 700 swordsmen and sought to break through, and he failed. And in desperation, Misha took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place. Now imagine this. Imagine the scene on the wall. You have the Israelites, and you have the armies of Judah, the armies of Israel, the armies of Edom. And they're surrounding this city. And Misha places his son on the wall and offered him as a burnt offering on that wall. We're told that great wrath came against Israel and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. And this is a difficult passage to interpret. So there are four views of what it means, and I want to just quickly mention them. What is this great wrath against Israel? Some think that it is Yahweh's answer, the Lord's Lord's anger against Israel for going too far in her scorched earth policy of war. Some think that it is Chemosh, the demon who is angry with Israel. And that's not really a viable position because Scripture does not accord to demons that kind of power. And some think, thirdly, that the wrath of the Moabites uh, against Israel was increased because they saw their king driven to such a length that he had to offer his only son as an offering on the wall. And they were enraged against Israel and were given somehow supernatural strength to drive Israel out. And then the fourth view is the one that 
I would lean toward. It is that the wrath is not against Israel. And it is not the wrath of God against Israel. But the Hebrew word against can be translated as well upon. And so according to the fourth understanding, wrath is understood to refer to Israel's indignation and horror be that they felt because of Misha's act of sacrificing his son on the wall. This is a view favored by Ralph Davis and Eugene Merrill and other scholars. But it is a difficult passage, admittedly, to, to interpret. But if we understand it in this way, what is being pointed out is that the final victory was incomplete, that Israel withdrew. And Israel withdrew if, if Israel's, uh, uh, if this view is correct, they withdrew because they were struck with indignation and horror at what they saw. And so we see then in this a great contrast between Israel in crisis and Moab in crisis. Moab ruled by demonic powers. Misha, having nowhere to turn, seeks help from Chemosh. In the prophet Micah, he says, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The sight of death, the sounds of screaming, and the smell of burning flesh of Misha's son being sacrificed are meant to create such a horror in our minds that we think of what it is that idolatry and sin leads to. That this kind of worship, that this kind of life in which I don't know what to do but to proceed along a path of destruction of even that which we love. The kings of Judah and Israel and Moab sought help from the prophet of the Lord and they received his help. But what does Misha have to resort to in order to get help from Chemosh? He asked to offer his own son as a burnt offering on the wall. So the contrast is in the way that God deals with Israel. It is not the sacrifice of our firstborn. It is not death and destruction that he expects from us. It is not that we have to offer or come up with an offering to awaken his compassion for us in our need. But God offers to us freely life and peace and joy because he has offered his own son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him might not perish, 
but have everlasting life. It is God's intent that we enjoy life and fellowship with him and all the blessings of our inheritance that we have in Christ, both present and future. And in this account, we see where idolatry, where sin leads us. And it ought to make us ask the question, am I horrified at it? Does it make me feel repulsed? It certainly did for Israel. And may it do that for us as well. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do come to you this night and ask that you would help us to realize our great need to be wholehearted in our commitment to you. That we would look to you in our moment of need, that we wouldn't seek to come up with some solution that is devised by us, but that we would look and see that which you have done for us in Christ Jesus and receive that from you. Grant us humility, O Lord, in our moment when we are weak and don't know what to do, that we would turn in faith and trust, knowing that you have given your only son for us and how much How much more will you freely and gladly give us all things? We ask, O Lord, that you would so work in our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.